In the Reading Corner today, it's my privilege to be talking to Peter Lantos, who is a neuroscientist and also a Holocaust survivor. Peter has now written a children's book about his experience called The Boy Who Didn't Want to Die. I began by asking him why he decided to write this book for children at this point in his life. Well, during the lockdown, uh, I decided to write about my experience, which happened during the Second World War, and on this occasion, to write it for children. I did write for adults, but it is a completely different experience, and I thought it may be quite important for the young generation to know what happened and probably why it happened. And that was like a thinking about writing a legacy, Mm -hmm. because there is this element that the survivors of whom I won, and I was five at the time, five, six, at the time, we are not going to be around for a very long time. And it is important there is a record. And the age that you have written this for um, is such an important formative period when young people start to develop their real value systems, I think, and to catch them while that is still developing seems to me to be so vital. In a way, yes, for convenience, it is specified as age group between 8 and 12. But I think that someone you know, a little bit later, could also read it. But that is, I think, a very crucial in a, in a child's development. And I remember that the same years after the war, when I started to go to school, were extremely important and formative, an age which the children can learn easily and develop from that knowledge and later may even do their own reading and own research into the subject. Just to go into your background a little bit for anybody that doesn't know this. Uh, So you were born in Hungary and um, the Hungarian Jews were transported later, weren't they? This had been going on across Europe for a long time. And the Hungarian Jews were some of the later. Yes, I think that the, the plan to exterminate the Hungarian Jews is the last chapter of the so-called final solution, which aimed at the extermination of all the Jews of Europe. And the reason for that, that unlike other countries, Hungary was an ally of Germany. So although there was very strong anti-Semitism and anti-Jewish laws in Hungary, nothing happened until the last year of the war, until 1944, when Germany invaded Hungary. And that was the beginning of the end of the Hungarian Jewry, because hundreds of thousands of people perished following the, the German invasion. You start your journey in your childhood home. And one of the things that really struck me for the entire journey that you're talking about, the journey to Bergen-Belsen and then freedom afterwards, was how sensory this experience was for you and how important the role of food is. 
Well, what a child remembers most is the physical state. I mean, being hungry all the time. You, you, one couldn't have that feeling was was there, and it was, you know, practically every every day and all the time. And then the bitterly cold, because we arrived in Belsen by uh, beginning of December, and it was bitterly cold, and there was obviously no hot water. We had to wash ourselves in ice-cold water in a semi-open shed, and these are the things I remember most, and also the lice, because we were infected, and also the boredom, because a child of five, there was hardly anything I could do. There were other children, but playing with other children somehow didn't uh, arise, couldn't arise. So on the, the, the hunger was probably the most dominating factor. And in fact, my father died of starvation as thousands of people died of it. And what was shocking to me that I didn't know um, was that food itself became a killer for the people that were liberated, um, sometimes through good intentions of people wanting to share food. But this was a really dangerous thing. In a way, it was because if for months one takes limited amount of calorie, limited amount of food, and then suddenly you try to eat proper, so-called proper food, meat and fish and fat and butter, etc., then your system just cannot cope with it. And many people died of the consequences to the point that the British who liberated Belston, they sent a people from a medical research council to study this, what would be the right food, because the soldiers started to give their tinned meat to the people and ditto the Americans. So my mother was that I survived. The credit goes entirely to, to my mother. She was very strict. When there was no food, she rationed the little food available. And there was a lot of food. She made sure that I didn't eat too much at a time, but rather small amounts more often during the day. Mm. And that is the main reason I think I survived. Mm. I want to talk about your mother because her presence in this is very strong. And she seems to have been a woman with incredible resilience and strength of mind to do uh, the right thing. I mean, she taught you German while you were in Bergen-Belsen. Um, her resilience um, in sort of getting away from the Russian and, and getting you onto that train with the, the coal truck. I mean, she just seems to have been incredible. And I wonder whether it is partly the force of her personality that you think you survived. Yes, I mean, that, 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 that there is no question that if she had been different and allowed me to do things and eat my ration as one go, I wouldn't have survived. Mm -hmm. And also she got the strength, her will to get home. And I had an elder brother and the major tragedy of her life, apart from losing my father, her husband, was that my brother, who was 20 at the time, there was a big age difference between us, died a couple of weeks before we got home. And that was a major shock to her. That leads me on to what is one of the most deeply affecting um, moments in your story. 
your mother is making fudge to yes. take to her son. Um, and when she learns of your brother's death, one of the things that you ask is for the fudge. And it says very simply that you cried at that point. You don't go into your feelings. You just say that you cried. Do you, do you remember how you felt in that moment? Well, it obviously was the conflicting feelings. I didn't quite realize what it meant that my brother, brother died. So when we learned that my brother died, my first reaction was, if my brother is not there, I can eat the fudge. So that is a primitivity of a, a boy of six. And only later I realized what it meant. And I, then when I got a little bit older, I got deeply shamed of that moment because I didn't realize how cruel it must have sounded for my mother. That's children. That's children. And there are lots of moments in this. Uh, one other moment that really stuck struck in my mind was when, I think it's when you were leaving for the ghetto and you retained in your pocket secretively the little toy mouse. I wondered how long that toy mouse was able to stay with you. Not very long, because um, as we were leaving the ghetto, we had to give up everything and uh, the, the mouse has gone. But very interesting, I have a mouse and it's very different. And the story of the mouse is that one of my colleagues, who was a neurosurgeon in Newcastle, as a medical student, volunteered to go to the Netherlands because there was a famine. And in the meantime, the British liberated Belsen and the 96 British medical students went to Belsen to help. And when I was doing research for, for my first book, I came across in medical journals the account of these medical students did right. And I came across a name which was very familiar to me. The name was John Hankinson, a professor of neurosurgery in Newcastle. So I checked in the medical directory. He graduated in 1945. So it must have been the same neurosurgeon whom I knew for years and the one medical student who was in Belsen. So I did write a letter to him. Then he did write a letter inviting me to Newcastle and produce a little velvet pouch from which he pulled out a beautiful silver pocket watch and said, look, I would like to give it to you. We were given this by the British as a thank you for helping cleaning of bells. You must have it. So I got the watch. But then John died and his daughter, Liz, she did write to me and said she read my book and she bought the book for her, her sons as well. And at Christmas, I got a little parcel from which I pulled out a grey mouse, which she made for me. That's wonderful. I learned lots of things that I didn't know. And of course, that's the purpose of writing the book. And one of the things that surprised me was about the Red Cross food parcels. Did the Red Cross know the extent of what was going on in these camps? I don't think that the extent was known, that it happened all over Europe. 
And I'm not sure whether the actual representative were allowed to, to visit properly these camps, particularly towards the end. Because by, by the end, in the early spring, people died by, by the hundreds. And when the British arrived, I'm sure you must have seen some of the pictures, mm-hmm. there were unburied bodies. So in a way, they couldn't know what was going on. And no one did know until well after the war, the whole extent, and the numbers they tried to compile was how many Jews had perished during the Holocaust. The other thing that struck me was how knowledgeable uh, your mother seemed to be of how the war was progressing outside the camp. Did people get information? Were they well informed? I don't know how, but there were rumours. And then obviously... We saw the changing pattern of the the flights over the camp. It was not the German place, but the American or the British plane flew over. But we didn't obviously knew uh, the the precise situation. But we did know that the Germans were losing the war because by the time we were deported, did they had happened. So it was quite clear that the Germans and their allies were losing the war. Of course, a story such as this cannot be anything other than bleak in many ways. And yet there's always that glimmer of light and hope. So getting out in spring to see things growing again. Did you put that in there because... It's how you felt or because you're aware of young readers reading this and you have to give them something hopeful. It's probably a a mixture because I wanted to write the book as an adventure, as a journey. And that's the reason why the chapters are places of the journey. And in a way, in fact, at the beginning, I thought it may be an adventure, which I would like. It gradually became clear that something is horribly going wrong. And it's not what I expected. I had to kind of consider what really happened when, for instance, in Austria, I could play with children while my parents worked on repairing the roads. And what I described, in a way, it, it, it happened. But I wanted to make it a balance that the, 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 those who read the book don't feel the hopelessness of it. And in the balance is that I did survive. And also that I survived with a positive attitude to life. Because when I went to school, I was determined that I will be a good student to follow in the footsteps of my, of my brothers and make as good as I could. Which, of course, is a huge uh, success story. How else do you feel this experience affected your life? What else have you taken forward in your life? I, I think that the experience is it was a determining factor. First of all, I think that the decision to become a doctor was a f- major factor of Belsen because. My idea was, seeing all this, that I would like to have a profession or a job in which I can help my fellow human being. And the most immediate for a 
adolescent of 16, 17, when I decided, was to become a doctor. So that was it. And it, it, in a way, it is really was Belsen. Not because there were many doctors in my family. There was none, which is quite unusual. In a large Jewish family, when there were eight siblings, both on my mother and father's side. So that was a, one factor. The other is Belsen, in a way, uh, gave me strength. Mm-hmm. And it always was at the back of my, my mind, however difficult the situation was, that if I survived Belsen, I am survived the situation in which I am now. Mm-hmm. So in a way, I can't say that Belsen was an entirely positive experience, but in a way it was an experience on which I could build my future life. And it was never a factor which held me back. I never got depressed on account of Belsen. I didn't have, you know, psychotherapy. I don't think I have a kind of a psychological baggage to carry. And it gave me strength for the future in a way. Maybe this is a connected question, but I wanted to ask you about memory. When you were writing, were you really recalling memories that you'd kept alive or did you have to dig into the past to recall memories that you'd buried? Well, it was a complex process. There were obvious things which I did remember. Then there were things which I remembered from my mother, although after the war we didn't talk about it for a long, long time, not until I became a teenager. But then it did help my second journey because what I decided to do after I retired, I made exactly the same journey from London, which 60 years earlier we had made from Hungary. And that in a way helped me to remember things which otherwise I wouldn't have remembered. Interesting, really interesting. Um, I have read a quote from you, which I fundamentally agree with, but some will find almost incomprehensible. And that is that you say hatred is a negative sentiment which destroys the person who hates rather than the person the hatred is directed at. Some people will find that hard to understand. I wonder whether that is something that has grown with wisdom and age or whether you always would have felt that? I think it obviously is kind of matured with age. But thinking back, I made decision earlier on, probably not consciously, which put me on the road to understanding or try to understand rather than to hate it. When at school, at high school, Russian was compulsory at the time in Hungary. And we could select one of the three languages, French, German, and English. I picked German. Thinking back, it was a little bit kind of an odd choice. It is true that later I I learned French and English privately, but German was the first choice. And then later, when I became a medical student, we had an exchange program with various countries behind the Iron Curtain. So we could go to to Romania, to East Germany, to Czechoslovakia, etc. And I 
chose East Germany. And I spent there one month in the summer, and I met German medical students and junior doctors, and I got on very well with them. Obviously, at the back of my mind, there was a question, what did your father do during the war? But in a way, it was that was kind of building a kind of a bridge instead of having a precipice. I do understand people, and I don't blame them for a minute, who hate Germans. They don't want to speak German, although some are fluent German. They never want to visit Germany. They don't want to have a German car. I never belong to that group. And can I ask you, perhaps again, another obvious question to bring our conversation uh, to a close, and that is what your hopes are for the young people who are reading this book? Well, that they perhaps will understand that terrible things can happen, and these terrible things can be probably prevented by other people, because there are many positive characters in the book. And just to make them think the question, how this could have happened, why did it happen in the 20th century, in the middle of the Europe? If not immediately after they reading the book, they might try to find an answer. The book's going to be published on Holocaust Memorial Day in January. As the Holocaust gets, you know, further away in history, uh, what should the role be of that memorial? It's kind of education role. What does it need to do to move forward into the future? Two things. One is remembering is quite important and not forgetting. The other, which is probably a higher aim, to try to make sure that Holocaust, particularly on that scale, but genocide, even smaller scale, doesn't again happen. And it's very difficult to be positive because we do know that genocide may be smaller scale, but did happen after the Holocaust. But if children and when they become adults, remember, they may be actually in the position to do something in their own way, in a, at a small scale, which will help that it doesn't happen again. Mm. Well, Peter, your book is going to contribute to that um, enormously. And I'm really appreciative of you spending some time with us today to tell us more about your life and your experience and the book, The Boy Who Didn't Want to Die. Thank you so much for joining me in the Reading Corner. Not at all. It was a pleasure. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. This episode is generously sponsored by Scholastic Children's Books. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.